That's good, huh? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's in the New Testament. If you don't have your Bibles, no problem. You can follow along on the big screen. Great to have you with us. I'd like to start off with a story. It's quite an interesting story I came across a number of years ago. It's a, about really a honeymoon disaster. The newlyweds arrived at the hotel at the wee hours with high hopes. They reserved a large room with romantic amenities. That's not what they found. Seems the room was pretty skimpy. The tiny room had no view, no flowers, a cramped bathroom, and worst of all, no bed. Just a fold-out sofa with a lumpy mattress and sagging springs. It was not what they had hoped for. Consequently, neither was the night. The next morning, the sore-necked groom stormed down to the manager's desk and ventilated his anger. After listening patiently for a few minutes, the clerk asked, Did you open the door in your room? The groom admitted he hadn't. He returned to the suite and opened the door that he had thought was a closet. There, complete with fruit baskets and chocolates, was a spacious bedroom. Think about it. If, if they had tried the door they thought was a closet, they could have had a comfortable bed instead of a clumpy sofa, a curtain-framed window rather than a blank wall, a fresh breeze in place of stuffy air, an elaborate restroom, not a tight toilet. But they missed it. How sad. They were cramped, cranky, and uncomfortable while comfort was a door away. They missed it because they thought the door was a closet. Now, when I first read that, I thought, that's the dumbest thing in the world. It's like, that's crazy. Would anybody actually do that? And when I go into motels, hotels, I, I check all the, you know, I'm checking all the doors and all that. But, but the more I thought about this, I thought, yeah, people do this all the time. How's that? Yeah, both non-Christians and Christians as it relates to Christianity. Most who reject Christianity don't know what they're rejecting. They think the door is a door to a closet. Most who have accepted Christianity don't fully live in it because they think the door leads to a closet. And what's interesting about Christianity, and this is what I would like to start off by saying, is that the Christian life is an encounter with the resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that is rational and relational, but it is so radical that you can hardly describe it without using superlatives and hyperbole. And in fact, those listening will think you're exaggerating, but you know in your heart you're not. See, and that's the Christian life. Now, here's the thesis, really, of this, this whole teaching series. We're heading into a new teaching series. And, and you'll see that on the front of the bulletin, there's this scale. What's the scale all about? Well, this is what I'm, I'm convinced of, and I hope to help you to see that. You can reason to a point of probability beyond a reasonable doubt about the validity of Christianity in general, but today we're going to talk about the resurrection. So I believe that you can, you can gather enough information that will tilt the scale in favor of the validity and the veracity of, of Christianity to the point that you would be willing to bet your eternity on it. 
that you would be that convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm convinced of that. And that's what this, this series is about. By the way, I need to challenge you, though, right at the front end of this, is that it, it, is, it, it is inconsistent to require more justification for Christian belief than you do for, for your own, your alternate belief system. Because if you don't believe in Christianity, that doesn't mean that you have no belief. You have an alternate belief. Everyone puts their hope and faith in something or someone. You can't exist without it. It's just how God wired us up. So you believe in something, but what I find inconsistent oftentimes is that people look for greater justification for the Christian faith than they do for their own, their alternate belief, and that's what happens often. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to challenge you. Don't check your brains at the door here. As we walk through these really difficult questions, I'm going to challenge you to look at your alternate belief system and hold it to the same justification you would the Christian faith. What we need to know and what you want to want to understand as it relates to what we're going to talk about today and in the Christian faith in general is that the Christian faith is not a blind leap into the dark, but it, it is a step into the light. The gospel of Jesus Christ is historical, it's evidential, it's factual, but it's much more than that. It's relational, it's experiential, it's very practical to our everyday life. And so, so as you'll see that the notes are divided up into two parts here. And so every week we're going to look at these two different parts. The gospel is, it is head sound, so it's intellectually sound, but it's also heart satisfying. So it's head sound, heart satisfying. It is rational, but it's also very relational. By the way, you need to have both of those parts if you're going to really understand Christianity. Now, if you just go with kind of the left brain, which would be more analytical and more rational, and you embrace Christianity just with your left brain, then that becomes uh, just a kind of a sterile, dead orthodoxy, going through the motions, checking the church box. You have all the facts, but you don't have much in the relationship realm. But if you only go with the right side of your brain, which is more relational then that'll get you into trouble too because oftentimes people come up with some really weird things about Christianity and about God. I've oftentimes heard people say some crazy stuff. God told me this or God said that. And it becomes weird if you, if you do the relational side without the rational side because the Christ, Christianity and understanding the Scriptures is that it is a heart experience based on objective truth. So it's both rational and relational. And that's where we're headed with our study this morning as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's once again go before the throne of grace. We'll pray and then we'll read through the text and unpack these notes. Father God, help us to to see more clearly and savor more completely that the measure, that the measure of your love, the measure of your love to us is the cross the giving of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. And the measure of the power, your power working in us is the resurrection. And so, God, we pray this morning that the resurrection, that we would understand that it's not just a historical fact, but can and should be a daily reality, making us more alive and free than we've ever, than we could ever imagine or dream. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Take a look at this text. Let me read through here. Uh, 11 verses, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. 
Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was raised, that He was that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Who's he talking about there? The me, the apostle Paul. So he's going to talk a little bit about his transformation. Now, keep in mind, the Apostle Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He killed Christians. And he encountered the resurrected Lord and Savior, and it revolutionized his life. And he went from killing Christians to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to his death. This is what he says. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Now, let's start with the first part. The resurrection is head sound. It's intellectually sound. Let me give you four arguments. Now, by the way, we could spend, you could take a seminary class in this. You could spend the next couple of years just researching this. So we're just, this is just a glance And I would challenge you, don't check your brains at the door. You need to investigate this even further. And what you're going to find, as I have found, is that there is overwhelming evidence. And this is just a little bit that we can draw from this text. First of all, the early accounts. How do we know that the resurrection happened because of the early accounts? Verses 3 and 4 give us a, a creed. Did you notice what it said? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried... And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. So that's a creed. That's a belief system. That's something that these folks recited shortly after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was just kind of a little memory tool for them to remind them of what Christ had done for them. And this is dated back within two years of the resurrection of Christ, within 24 to 36 months. Now... There's, there's something else about the, the early accounts here, and I'll tell you why it's important to know this, is that this letter, 1 Corinthians, was written within 15 years after Jesus. Now, I've been married for 36 years, and 36 years, how many say, that's a long time. I don't look that old, do I? Please tell me I don't. Help me out. Thank you very much. But, uh, but 36 years is a long time. But uh, do you think I could tell you some details about that day? Oh, yeah. Pretty significant. Do you think 15 years later after the resurrection, he could share a few details about that day and about what went down and what happened? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Here's the point is that oftentimes people will say, oh, this is a legend. The accounts are too early. In fact, uh, experts would say that uh, it takes at least two generations to begin to develop legends. 
this isn't even, even the, barely the start of a, of a generation. It takes two generations for legends to begin to take place. So based on these early accounts, not only that, did you notice that twice in these verses, verses 3 and 4, he says, in accordance with the Scriptures, in accordance with the Scriptures. What's the point that he's making here? He's saying this. This is pretty incredible. It's prophecy. It was a prediction thousands of years earlier. Jesus fulfilled those predictions. And in fact, we're going to spend a little more time next week when we talk about this because I want to give you the, the rationale behind the validity and the veracity of the Scriptures, what makes the Bible different from all the other books out there. And one of them is that it is prophetically powerful because it made these predictions that, in fact, uh, in, in fact, if, if you were to, in fact, the prophecies, these predictions, there are greater odds of these predictions taking place in relationship to... Uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ than if you were to guess the numbers accurately of five lottery Powerball winning tickets in a row. If you did that, you'd probably get arrested because they'd try to figure out, hey, how'd they do that? Five in a row? But the odds are greater for Jesus fulfilling 300 biblical prophecies. So that's what he's saying. So he's saying, it is written. Look at the evidence. Pretty profound. Pretty profound. Then you got the empty tomb. And you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and also the book of Acts all report the empty tomb. And in fact, I put this on your notes. Acts 22, 26, uh, Paul is under arrest. Remember Paul, the guy that persecuted Christians, killed Christians? And he went from there to proclaiming the gospel to his death. He's under arrest. He's brought before King Agrippa and Governor Festus. You can study this. Pretty interesting because he gives an opportunity. That's a platform for him to present the gospel. Talks about death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And and what's interesting in in his dialogue and interchange with Governor uh, Festus and King Agrippa is that Governor Festus says, You're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning has driven you crazy. And Paul responds by saying, I'm not crazy. I encountered the resurrected Lord and Savior, and everybody knows that he resurrected. And then he even appeals to King Agrippa. King Agrippa, you know that's a fact. That's evidence. You cannot deny that. It's a historical fact. It was common knowledge in this day. Now, there's a guy by the name of N.T. Wright that did a lot of research on that, and he's got really a big volume on this whole idea of the resurrection. And he kind of works through it logically, and what he says here is that, um, is that logically, if you had the empty tomb and no sightings, you'd have to assume that the, Bible, that, uh, that the body was, uh, was stolen. Because that's what a lot of people say, the body was stolen. Now, but if you had no empty tomb, in other words, the body was still there. You could go to the tomb and his body was still there. And yet you had sightings, you would just have to say that they're lying or they're having hallucinations. But if you have an empty tomb plus sightings, that gives you validity to the resurrection. That's the rationale, and they kind of work through that and show. So you got early accounts, empty tomb, and then, of course, the eyewitnesses. These all kind of go right in line, eyewitnesses, verses 5 through 8. Now, this is, this is what's fascinating when you really look at these, these eyewitnesses, is that the risen Christ appeared not only to individuals in small groups, but he also appeared... To 500 at once, Paul makes that very clear. 
most still alive, as he said, at the time that he was writing and could be consulted for validation. Paul's letter was to a church, and therefore it was, public, it was a public document written to be read aloud. Paul was inviting anyone who doubted that Jesus had appeared to people after his death to go and talk to the eyewitnesses if they wished. See, that's, that's the challenge that he gives them. And then as you kind of work through some of these names, did you notice some of the names here? You've got, uh, you've got Cephas. Who's Cephas? Anybody know? Yell it out to me. Peter. Yeah. So Peter was the guy that denied Christ three times. And so the very first one, he goes and he shows himself to Peter, almost to say, hey, Peter, I know you really blew it big time, but I love you. I died for you. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And then you've got the 12, and then you've got more than 500. And then who's James? Anybody know who James is? James is Jesus' half-brother. Now, let me ask you this. What would it take for your family members to believe that you, you are God in the flesh? How about a resurrection? How about coming back from the dead? And yet that's James. He writes the book. You can read his book in the, in the Bible. And he went to his death. They threw him off the temple, the top of the temple, because they wanted him to deny Christ. He said, I'm not going to do that. There's no way I'm going to do that. And they threw him off the temple. He didn't die. They came and beat him with poles until he was bludgeoned dead. Isn't that interesting? And most of these all uh, died terrible deaths, many tortured to death. Now, now, immediately you're going to say, well, of course, people die all the time for what, what they believe to be true. And I, I would agree with you. But nobody, nobody will ever die for a lie. Nobody will ever die for a lie. And that's oftentimes people say, well, they made this up. And they died for a lie? No, they didn't. In fact, Blaise Pascal puts it this way. I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. What's also interesting about this story is the dramatic change in the disciples. Did you notice how they were? We'll get into it a little bit more next week. But they were frightened. They were running like a bunch of rats jumping off of a sinking ship. They were very frightened. They all abandoned Jesus. They are frightened and hiding. And then after the resurrection, they become strong and courageous, witnessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. And that brings us to the next one, the emergence of the church. The book of Acts makes that very clear. And then most of the New Testament was written by the, the Apostle Paul. And most of that is written to these local churches, these churches that are beginning to pop up in all the, the cities there because of people who, who have encountered Christ and then second-generation Christians who have encountered Christ through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes people will say, well, hey, the burden of proof is on Christians to prove that he was resurrected. Actually, I believe the burden of proof is on unbelievers to explain why Christianity exploded in the first century. I mean, it just took off. Right after the resurrection, it took off. And within a few centuries, it took over the Roman Empire. Now, there were some pretty negative things that happened as a result of that, that, that they began to turn uh, Christianity into, into kind of a religion, and they lost all sense of what this was all about. But, I mean, it took off. And even 2,000 years later, what's the biggest belief system on this planet Earth? It's, it's Christianity, 2.2 billion people put their faith in this resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the questions you have to answer. Why did Christianity emerge so quickly with such power? No other group of Messianic followers in that era concluded their leader was raised from the dead. Why did this group do so? No group of Jews ever worshipped 
uh, a human being as God, what changed their worldview virtually overnight? Now, C.S. Lewis uses a phrase that's called chronological snobbery because immediately, and he just says, what we typically do is we look to people in the past and say, well, they're just not as intelligent as we are. They're just not very smart. We're, you know, we're enlightened. We're really enlightened compared to them. And here's what's interesting. If you do the research, you're going to find that the Greeks and the Jews were culturally less likely to believe the resurrection than what you and I are. I mean, it went completely contrary to their mindset, to their paradigm, to their belief system, to their, their worldview was contradictory to anything like this happening. And yet, and yet many of them put their faith in this resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Also, by the way, why did the day of worship so dramatically change from Saturday to Sunday today? Because of the resurrection. The Sunday was the day of the resurrection. That's when Christians begin to gather in celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, now we've just touched the surface. This is just a little bit. Don't check your brains at the door. Don't check your brains at the door. Think about this stuff. It's rational. In fact, what you will find, as I have, that the more evidence that you begin to see, the scale begins to tilt more and more in favor of Christianity, and you will be blown away. You'll just go, wow, I had no idea. Now, let me give you three quotes. These are three guys that were atheists. Two at the very beginning tried to disprove of Christianity. Uh, the first one is Lee Strobel. Anybody here ever hear of Lee Strobel or read any of his books? Yeah, quite interesting. His wife became a Christian, and he made fun of her. Said, oh, that's silly. It's just, uh, you know, make-believe. You know, Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, Jesus. And, um, and so she challenged him. She said, well, smarty pants, take your little law degree. And he had a law degree, and he was a... Uh, reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And so she said, well, why don't you put your investigative knowledge to work and why don't you try to disprove it? Why don't you go out and do some research? Here's what he says. He says, it was the evidence from science and history that prompted me to abandon my atheism and become a Christian. And thus, you know, he's, he's wrote the books, the, the Case for Faith, The Case for Christ, The Case uh, for Creation. Pretty phenomenal works. He's, he's done his homework. Here's another guy. Uh, this is a guy that helped me out early on in my Christian faith. It was Josh McDowell. He got tired of the Christians hounding him. And so he says, you guys are crazy. This, isn't, this is all make-believe. And so they said, okay, then uh, prove it. Look into the evidence. They challenged him to look into the evidence. So he began to do the research. In fact, I've got a number of his volumes. He's written Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I mean, those are big old thick books of, of research that he's done, along with The Resurrection Factor, which is another book. And in that book, I remember him saying, I looked it up this last week, and he said, I came across so much evidence for the resurrection that I, had, I would have to have committed intellectual suicide to deny it. So this is what he says. After I set out to refute Christianity intellectually and couldn't, I came to the conclusion that the Bible was true and Jesus Christ was God's son. The next one here, so that's two. Here's the third one. It's C.S. Lewis. How many have ever heard of C.S. Lewis or read any of his works? Pretty phenomenal. Mere Christianity. I would challenge you to read that. In fact, he refers to himself as the reluctant convert. It was the last thing that he wanted to do. 
And yet, in a lot of his writings, I mean, he really, in the mere Christianity, gives validity to his faith. But this is what he says. This is one of his many quotes. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So there you have it. Let me have you do this real quick. Before we hit the second part of this study, um, so, the, so the resurrection is intellectually sound. It's head sound. And we're going to move into the heart-satisfying part. So I'm going to kind of deal with more of that spiritual implications of that. I want you to turn to the folks sitting around you and just find out what do they like most about this time of the year other than the resurrection and the implications I'm about ready to talk about. What are some of the fun things that you enjoy doing uh, over this weekend as you gather with family and as you're hanging out here in church? Real quick, do that. Turn to the people next to you. Okay, what did you guys come up with? Yell them out to me. Anything? Family? Okay. Barbecues. How many are doing barbecue? A few doing barbecue? Food. food? How many just, how many said food? 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 Oh, yeah. A lot of good food. The weather? Can't beat the weather here, huh? Oh, I love the weather. How many spring breakers do we have? Spring break? Spring break? How many uh, moms and dads will be tickled to death when they get back to school? Okay. They're driving you crazy? No, I mean, you don't feel that way. Some of you don't feel that way, maybe. Like, you, like having the kids around? Cool. Right on. A lot of great things. Let's talk about this. Because if he, if he didn't resurrect from the grave, basically in this text, verse 14, chapter 15, he says, our preaching is in vain, meaning it's empty, and your faith is in vain. So it's, it's pretty important. Here's the relational side of this. The resurrection is heart satisfying. Let, let me challenge you with something here, though. I like a good challenge. If you hang out with us, you'll be challenged probably pretty regularly. Here's what you need to understand as it relates to the resurrection. Sometimes people will say, I like this about Christianity, but I don't like that. They kind of pick and choose. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. By the way, if you liked all of his teaching, you're kind of being a little bit robotic in that. And some of his teaching, it rubs, rubs me a little bit wrong. But that's normal. It just means that we don't have a step for God, that he's kind of somehow fitting within our mold. There should be challenges when you read this book. It should challenge us because there's a a sinful nature about us. The values of this world are quite contrary to the Bible. And we have an adversary that's dogging us like crazy. And so it should challenge you. But but if you can somehow put God in a box and you kind of pick and choose what you want, that's not the issue. The bigger issue, did he rise from the dead? If he rose from the dead, he is who he said he is. And man, we ought to bow down and worship him. We ought to give our lives to him. And we need to remember that everything that he says is out of his wisdom and love for us. It just makes sense. It just makes sense. But if he didn't rise from the dead, we might as well forget the whole thing. We're wasting our time. And really it comes down to the argument that C.S. Lewis says, he's either a liar or a lunatic or he's truly the Lord. No evidence of him being a liar or a lunatic, but boy, there's plenty of evidence that he is Lord, that he is Lord. And and when you begin to see that, and he, and not just see it, but it seizes you, he begins to seize you, he begins to get a hold of your heart, you will never, ever be the same. It's unbelievable. When you encounter the resurrected Lord and Savior, and so here's the first thing. 
Because Jesus rose from the dead, number one, he really is who he said he is. He's the revealer of God. It says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It's a pretty bold statement. That's what Jesus said. He said, I am the way. I am the way to God, not a way, but the way. Major difference. The way. The truth. You want to know about God? Get to know me. He even says that in the context. If you've gotten to know me, you're getting to know God the Father. So he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. He will give to you a life unlike you've ever experienced before. He is the very source of life, both physical and spiritual. In fact, he describes that life in his prayer to the Father in John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So it's knowing God. And by the way, the word there for knowing God is not just... Just in an intellectual pursuit, but it combines this truth about God revealed to us through the Scriptures along with an experience of God in our hearts and lives. So that's one. Number two, because Jesus rose from the dead, he really did what he said he would do. Redeemer of man. Redeemer of man. So he's the revealer of God, but also the redeemer of man. How many are familiar with the very popular verse? Maybe you saw at the at an end zone at a football game, John three sixteen. It's been a while. I think they chase those guys out of there quite regularly. But how many are familiar with John three sixteen? Show of hands. How many would be able to quote it? Okay, I'm going to have some of you come on up here and quote it. I'm just kidding. I'll quote it for you. It's pretty easy. It's pretty profound. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So in essence, he's saying we are going to perish unless we put our faith in him. But he loved you so much, he sent his son on a rescue mission for you and I. That's amazing. That's crazy. That's crazy love that he has for us. So so he, because Jesus rose from the dead, he really is, he really did do what he said he would do, redeemer of man. See, when, when we run from God... When we think the door is a closet, we're like a fish out of water. We are running from everything that will make us alive and free. Here's the next point on your notes. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we can live a life most only dream of living. Verse 10, remember the Apostle Paul? He uses this word grace three times in verse 10. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So the grace of God. That's a big word among Christians. Of course, John 10, 10 talks about uh, he came that we might have fullness of life. And I think that by his grace, we can have fullness of life. Now, anytime we talk about people you know, converting to Christianity or becoming a Christian, I would... I would bet you that most people don't really understand what Christianity is about. Because in a little bit, I'm going to challenge you to make a confession of faith in Jesus. And I'll bet most of you are probably thinking moralism. Oh, i got to start living what Jesus teaches. i got to get my act together. I've got to do these things before he will accept me. 
See, that's what most people think. You're wrong. And in fact, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion in this world. I've done you know, substantial studies in other religions and really comparing them to Christianity. This is one of the reasons why I'm a believer today is because they're, they're the antithesis. They're the opposite of what Christianity is about. Every other religion says this. The good are in, the bad are out. Meet our standard, do these things, and they have a list of things that you have to do. And then you'll be in. The good are in, bad are out. Here's what Christianity says. We talked about it last week. Christianity says, no, 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 no. No, it's, it's not based on what you do. In other words, you don't do certain things to make yourself right with God. It's based on not spelt D-O, but it's spelt D-O-N-E. It's what Christ has done to make you right with God. You could never do enough, but he did it all for you. It is finished as one of the statements that he said on the cross. It is complete. And all you need to do is be humble and bring your needs to him. See, every other religion, good or in, bad or out, Christianity, the humble are in, the proud are out. All you need is a need. That's phenomenal. That's crazy. It's been done for you. I'm telling you, man, when that gets a hold of your life, when you begin to understand the implications of that, that's what begins to change your life. Are you going to want to follow him? Absolutely. Why wouldn't you? If he's indeed the Lord, if he was resurrected from the grave, if he said he'd give me fullness of life, I've never experienced a greater life than when I became fully devoted to him, when I put him at the center of my life, when I entered into all that he has provided for me. It's not what I do. It's what has been done done for me. We can live a life most only dream of living. It's amazing. So here's three of the implications for that. Real quick, past sins are forgiven. It's called justification. He sets us free from the penalty of sin. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So that gets rid of all guilt and shame. That's, that's crazy. He will never, ever, ever hold our sin against us. We stand before him completely righteous. We have access to God forever and ever. So our sins, our past sins are forgiven. There's nothing I can do to make him love me more, and there's nothing that I have done that would make him love me less. Here's the next one. Present problems conquered. It's called sanctification. He's in the process of setting us free of the power of sin. We just finished up a teaching series here through the book of Nehemiah. About three-quarters of the way through the book, we're going to return to it in the summer. We talked about rebuilding and how God rebuilds our lives. It is amazing how God rebuilds our brokenness. And we're all broken but when we, when we come to him, he begins this rebuilding process. If we begin to give him the pieces of our life, it's amazing what he can do. That's what this sanctification is all about. His presence and approval is all I need for everlasting joy in spite of the people, things, and circumstances of my life. Once I begin to understand that, enter into the fullness of it, it begins to set me free from the power of sin that's working around us. If you're saying this morning, hey, I won't be happy until something changes in my life, then you don't have this. You're not living in the reality of this. You have everything you need in him, his approval, his presence. Amazing. And then here's the third one. Future in heaven secure. It's called glorification. One of these days he will set us free from the very presence of sin. That's when we go to be with him in heaven. All guaranteed by the cross 
through the resurrection, past sins are forgiven, present problems conquered, future in heaven secure. Now, I was really thinking about this last one the last couple of days. If you ever get bored, do what I did this last week. I found my local dentist and went and had a root canal. How many have ever had a root canal before? Oh boy, is that fun or what? I have been in such pain the last 48 hours. I was up the, the last couple nights up until last night. I was up until about 1.30, 2 o'clock. It's just an excruciating pain. I'm loaded up on meds this morning. And so if I'm, so if I'm kind of talking a little crazy from time to time, you'll know why. But it just, I mean, it was just, I was thinking a lot about my body and how it's breaking down. And I don't want ever, ever, ever another root canal. Thank you very much. That was not much fun. And yet it reminded me of this, that one of these days, he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And we will have new bodies and a new heavens and a new earth. By the way, if you don't believe in the resurrection... You're going to want to believe in it just for that. If, if you're into social justice, if you don't like to see all the poverty and the sickness in our world today, he's going to eradicate it. He's going to take care of it once and for all. Just for that sake alone would be enough for someone to want, to want to believe in the resurrection. Because Jesus' resurrected body tells us, hey, there's better times coming. He's going to come back to this earth and set up his kingdom. And we're going to have a new heavens and a new earth and new bodies. And he's going to wipe away every tear and no more pain and no more suffering. The Bible makes, makes that very clear. I'm excited about that. So those are the three things... Really, and you could spend a lot of time just working through the implications. Let me wrap things up this morning by sharing with you a story. It's kind of a, it's kind of a creepy story. <laughs> it's an Alfred Hitchcock story. Anybody like Alfred Hitchcock? Some of his stuff. It's kind of creepy. It's not a true story, but it's got a lesson to it. And I think it's really helpful for us this morning. There was a woman who murdered her husband and was sent to prison for the rest of her life. No possibility of parole. And she was insistent that there's no way I'm going to rot in prison the rest of my life. I'm going to figure out a way to get out of prison. And so as the bus arrived at the prison, she noticed outside the prison walls was an elderly gentleman who was bearing a casket. And it turns out an inmate had died, and there was an elderly worker at the prison who lived there who would bury the inmates when they died outside the prison walls. So she started to think, this is a possible way that I could escape. She got into the prison, made friends with this elderly man who, who did the burial of the inmates. And she found out that, that he had some problems with cataracts in his eyes. And um, he was have a, having trouble seeing. So she said, hey, I've got, I've got money. And I could pay for you to have an operation to restore your sight so that you could see better. And uh, I will do that if you will help me escape. And so he responded by saying, okay, I have a plan. The next time an inmate dies, come down to the little room where I build the caskets and you get into the casket with the dead body and we'll bury you. And then I'll come back out in the middle of the night and dig you up and set you free. A few weeks later, in the middle of the night, the bell tolls, which means an inmate had died. She gets out of her cell, fills her way down the hallway to where his workroom is, and finds the casket. She climbs in with the body, puts the top of the casket over her, and waits. 
A few hours later, she could feel the casket being wheeled outside. She feels the casket then being lowered into the ground. She hears the dirt clods hitting the casket. I don't know about you, but I've got a little bit of claustrophobia. Anybody have claustrophobia? You're kind of like, oh. But you put yourself in this position, and you're in this little box with a dead body, and you're going to be buried under six feet of dirt. She waited. She kept waiting for the guy to come. It gets to be a long long time. Where is he? Why isn't he here to dig me up? What's going on? Why isn't he coming? She starts to panic. I mean, can you imagine being in this box and she's, he's not coming? And so, so what does she do? She lights a match to see, and sure enough, the body next to her was the body of the elderly worker. How many saw that one coming? Okay. That's creepy. I won't be able to sleep tonight. Her only hope was buried with her. There's a lot of lessons we could learn from that, believe it or not. But I think the most powerful lesson is this. This woman had placed her faith, her trust, in another human being who she sincerely thought could rescue her from the grave. But he had died And he had taken her to his grave with him. Everyone believes. What are you putting your hope in? What are you putting your trust in? The point I want to make here is that every other founder of every great religion is in their grave right now. Confucius, he's in the grave. Buddha, he's in his grave. Muhammad, he's in his grave. Joseph Smith, he's in his grave. The only one in history who the evidence clearly demonstrates has the power to overcome the grave and the power to rescue you from the grave is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus said. He made this very clear. It's uh, John eleven twenty five through 26. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So here's your last statement on your notes, last fill in the blank. How do you come to terms with Jesus completely giving himself for you? He gave himself for you to give you fullness of life. Sin's gone Present problems managed because he indwells you with his Holy Spirit. And your future is secure. You take your last breath here, you take your first breath with him forever. How do you respond? Here it is. By you completely giving yourself to him. Now, in our text, verses 1 and 2, it used three words. Receive, stand, and hold fast to the gospel. If you will receive, stand, build your life on the gospel, and hold fast to the gospel. And if you don't, you have believed in vain. And so what he's saying here is that it's more than just an agreement with facts in the head. It's more than just something that's intellectual. It's an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all of your appetites. You make him the Lord of your life. You find greater satisfaction in him than in anything in this world. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. I'm going to give you an opportunity to make a confession of faith this morning. Really an important decision. With your heads bowed, eyes closed, just I want you to think about a couple of things and then I'll lead you in a prayer. 
See, if you hear the gospel and forget it, lose interest in it, fall away from it, then you've never really gotten it. But if right now you are conscious of the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most wonderful, thrilling, exciting news you've ever heard in your life, then you're, then you're on track. It's time as, as whatever's tugging at your heart, that's the work of the Holy Spirit drawing you to the Father because of the work of Jesus. Now you can reason to a point of probability beyond a reasonable doubt about the validity of Christianity, but it takes commitment to lead to certainty. And so I would invite you to make a commitment this morning. You might say, well, how do I do that? You, first of all, acknowledge that your sin separates you from God for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of your sins. And then he resurrected on the third day to give us fullness of life, to validate what he said, who he was. And then third, you confess him as Savior and Lord. You give your life to him. God, we do that this morning. We acknowledge our sin that separates us from you. We believe that you died on the cross for our sins. Not just a historical fact, but can be a daily reality. We, we know that we enter into a relationship with you, and we want to follow you. We want to make you the, the passion, the pursuit, the priority of our lives. And so we, we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. We bow down to him. We worship him. We want him to be at the center of our lives. And God, help us to understand that, that we were created by you for your glory and that you are most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in you. So help us to learn how to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.